millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the Napoleon Assist. It's day four of Waterloo Remembered, and today we have the last in our triple bill of interviews on forgotten foreign forces. I'm really privileged today to be joined by Vanya Bellinger, who is a scholar from the United States. Vanya, how are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me. No, it's a pleasure to have you on. Let's, let's jump straight in with your work. Tell us a bit about your, your own research. Well, my research, I can explain it like really briefly, it's everything Karl von Clausewitz. Um, Karl von Clausewitz is the big, or we like to say, the most influential Western thinker, um, military thinker, and um, his book on war is the foundational text everyone at um, military academies, service schools, and so on studies. So um, I got sucked in into the field as well. I wrote the book on Karl von Clausewitz's wife, Marie von Clausewitz, because she's the one who actually published on war. He died, left the manuscripts with her, and so on. And I was lucky because the, the uh, intimate correspondence between Karl and, Karl and Marie von Clausewitz fell, fell into my lap. So that's how I wrote my book, that's how I made my reputation, and that's how I ended up teaching at, um, um, in a service school in the United States. Yeah, because you work for the US Air Force, don't you? Which is a bit of an odd one when you think that you've got somebody who specializes in the Napoleonic era when like obviously air warfare wasn't a factor, you know, it's not mentioned in Glasswitz's own war. And, and yet the US Air Force kind of employs you to teach, teach about that. It's an interesting one. Yes, um, people like sometimes react like why the Air Force, Napoleonic warfare, but like I said, um, on war, Clausewitz, that's the foundational text. Even when we talk about air power, it still remains the foundational text. Um, you know, center of gravity, 
favorite term of all, all the pilots. So, um, and of course, um, more and more, the more you rise in your career as an officer, um, the more and more joint forces play a role, strategic thought play a role. And that's where Clausewitz and um, uh, also Napoleonic warfare comes, because we can use many of these examples explaining um, a lot of the issues um, commanders uh, are facing. And tell us a little bit about Clausewitz's role and, and career within the Napoleonic Wars, because it's, it's quite an interesting one. Well, Clausewitz, um, his writings, he, he based them um, uh, mostly on, on his experience in the Napoleonic Warfare. Um, he starts very early. He's not quite 12 years old when he um, fights in the First Revolutionary War. He's like a boy soldier with a, with a flag um, marching before the troops. Um, then, of course, um, uh, Prussia, because he's Prussian, he, um, Prussia, Prussia is very quickly leaves um, the Napoleonic Warfare, the first, uh, not Napoleonic Warfare, sorry, the Revolutionary, um, the First Revolutionary War. Um, so he spends his time studying. Um, he comes um, sort of, um, yeah, he, he's mentored by Gerhard von Schankhorst, who's the guy reforming the Prussian army. Um, so Clausewitz also fights in the unfortunate campaign for the Prussians. Um, that's Jena Auerstadt campaign in 1806. Um, Clausewitz is um, heartbroken from that campaign, but he's actually one of the guys who fought with, uh, with distinction in, in Auerstadt. Uh, then he's like a prisoner of war for a little while in France, comes back, starts working for uh, Schanhorst again, and um, he is in the midst of, the, uh, of this reform, military reform movement that basically um, overhauls the Prussian army and prepares it um, to fight against Napoleon. Um, 1812, Russia, however, becomes an unwilling ally of, um, of, of, uh, of France. So Clausewitz resigns um, and in very dramatic move, moves to Russia. So he participates in 1812 campaign, but fights in Russian uniform, comes back um, 1813, back to Russia. He's not admitted in the Prussian army because of this um, dramatic gesture. So he spends 1813, 1814, fighting again, but in a Russian uniform. And only 1815, um, he's back. Uh, in Russian army and he becomes the chief of staff of the uh, third Prussian army corps. So um, he fights actually not in Waterloo but in the twin battle which is the battle of Wavre. That's the, the battle that prevents um, that prevents Grouchy from coming to Napoleon's aid. It's worth us dwelling on that a little bit because some of our listeners might not necessarily be familiar with the role of the Prussians in the Waterloo campaign. Take us briefly through what happens to the Prussian army and, and, and their role in the defeat of Napoleon. So most people usually concentrate on Waterloo, the, the Battle of Waterloo, which is, which is the, the great drama 
the, the great battle, but actually the campaign starts a couple of day, days earlier. This is when Napoleon secretly leaves Paris um, and uh, crosses the Belgian border. That's actually where the Prussians meet him. We have the first corps, the first Prussian corps, actually fighting him, but moving, retreating very slowly. So to give time to Wellington and Prince uh, von Blücher, who's the Prussian commander, to gather their armies. Um, so the campaign officially starts on June uh, 15th. Um, and then we have a big battle, um, the Battle of Ligny, which is on, on the 16th. Um, that's the same time um, for the British, British listeners, that's Quatre Bras, where uh, Wellington is fighting Quatre Bras. But it's the small engagement, actually the big engagement is in Ligny. Um, and um, this is uh, where the Prussians actually suffer um, huge defeat in that moment but um by by sheer luck or we, we there is still debates how that things happen instead of going back east um back falling back on their line of retreat um they in um the, the prussians still think uh, preserving the connection with wellington which is the most important thing so they actually fall back up north so they go to Vavre. Um, and um, Napoleon kind of gets faulty um, intelligence, so he's not expecting them to be up north. And this is where, um, again, there is a, again a conversations with Wellington, and there is the promise to support him in Waterloo. So um, the Prussians, um, although they are really tired, um, the army has been beaten really badly in Ligny, so the Prussians still hurry to support Wellington. So they arrive around, uh, uh, the, 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 the fourth corps arrives around four o'clock in the afternoon, so they are actually um, going on the, the, the right flank, um, and um, they're pretty successful there. They actually turn, turn and route the, the French troops. And then we have um, the first corps, General Seaton, who goes and supports Wellington. Um, what, what makes um, Waterloo decisive battle, and here like the military theorist in me has to explain what makes a battle a decisive battle is actually the pursuit. Um, that's like the, the moment when you uh, not only defeat your enemy, but utterly destroy the enemy's will and ability to fight again. So this is where the pursuit because Wellington's troops, they are so tired, they had to fight that whole day. Actually, the Prussian troops are the ones who do the pursuit and make, um, and make Waterloo a decisive battle. Um, so um, that's not to minimize um, Wellington's forces, but we have to understand that battle as a coalition, uh, coalition warfare. And um, of course, many people don't realize, because that's always like, Waterloo was won and the war ended, but the war actually did not end. Um, because um, where Clausewitz was in, in Wavre, they had to 
fight Grouchy, and Grouchy was, um, had a um, forces that were twice the size of the Prussians. Um, so basically, um, the Third Corps, Clausewitz, they fight this um, uh, sort of, um, yeah, for them it's kind of meaningless battle, but it's, um, it has a meaning of holding off Grouchy. So they lose that battle, and then um, by various reasons, uh, Grouchy manages to escape. Um, and um, actually the Allies have to pursue, um, pursue him and um, have to uh, go to Paris. They have to fight one more battle at the gates of Paris and for that war to be over. So actually the war ends on July 8th. So this is, um, uh, the campaign is much more um, than just, uh, just one glorious battle. It absolutely is. And as you have explained to everybody, the, Prussian, the Prussians play an absolutely pivotal role in how Waterloo unfolds, not just on the 18th, but in, in terms of the strategy. I mean, what people often fail to appreciate is that Wellington and Blücher were in close communication about the plans, even before the Waterloo campaign, in terms of what they wanted to do. Um, and, and the whole point of Capture Brian Ligny was the fact that Wellington hoped that he wouldn't be attacked at Kachapa and would therefore be able to move his army across to support Blücher at, at Ligny in the way that Blücher eventually ended up doing when moving across from Barve to Waterloo. Why do you think the role of Blücher's army has been downplayed in the history that's been written about the battle and the campaign as a whole? Um, I think for the most part, that, that was known, pretty well known throughout the 19th century. Um, it was seen as a coalition battle. I think um, <laughs> the more and more the rise of Prussia and then unification, and then we have, um, you know, the fear of this uh, great, you know, the German Empire, and uh, the German Empire, and then we have, um, also, you know, World War One, World War Two. So um, I, I think it's more a reflection of our own times than actually what happened in the battle. Um, Wellington um, never questioned the, the role Blucher had. He's been very gracious, always um, explaining it. Um, I think there is also, again, coalition warfare is complicated. Like, I think this is also, one of the reasons um, why you know the um, the contributions of the Prussians are forgotten, and why we have such a hard time explaining it, is because coalition warfare is complicated. Even until today, coalition warfare is one of the most complicated uh, forms of warfare, and um, it's. Um, it's it's hard to to explain it to people like people like a little bit more <laughs> a little bit more simpler narratives um and of course there is like this uh small scuffle between the prussians and uh, and um wellington because um how the battle to be named um wellington says i want to be waterloo because that's the name of his headquarters and he likes that thing um, to be always his battles to be named after his um, headquarters. But, you know, actually the Prussians like to call it Belle Alliance 
because that's the farmhouse. And also sounds so much nicer, you know, nice alliance, you know, beautiful alliance and so on. And they have a little bit of um, how to be named and the bauxites name it um, uh, differently. So if you look at 19, 19th century German maps, you find Belle Alliance. If you read on wall, Karl von Clausewitz is Belle Alliance. Only, only like in um, recent times in the German language, um, you call it the Battle of Waterloo. So that's that's also this um, kind of interesting moment. And definitely with the Prussians on that, it, sh it should have been called La Belle Alliance. It's, it's just such a lovely metaphor and I think it really would have helped how people remember um, the battle. What, what's mm. the personal relationship like between Blücher and Wellington and how big an impact do you think that that had in how things played out? Well, they're quite different people. Uh, I mean, they're constantly in contact, as you said, throughout the campaign, but they're actually very different people. Um, we, we have Wellington, who, who's like the great um, practitioner of defensive warfare. He's like the, the greatest commander probably ever of the defensive war. And then we have Blucher, who's like, this mentality of, of the Hussar, you know, always attack, attack, attack. He's always on the offensive. Um, famously, um, when Gerhard von Schanthorst um, um, suggested in 1813 that, you know, Blücher um, has to be the commander of the Prussian troops, he, he said, like, he's the only one who's not afraid of Napoleon. You know, he's like, there is like, Blücher is, you don't make commanders anymore like this, and probably with a good reason. <laughs> But like his fascinating character. So they're very different people. Um, but again, um, we have Blücher, that's his mindset, that, you know, the, the Hussar's mindset that's been talked a lot about it, that he has to support, like that's the, what the Hussars do. They support the main army. So that's what, um, whatever it is, he, um, he will support Wellington. Um, also, I think a little bit, um, we historians like all these anecdotes, personal anecdotes, you know, make, make great st stories. But I think in, in this case, the personalities do not play such a big role um, as much as um, the greater geopolitical interest. Because um, we have, Wellington goes into the campaign with completely different objectives than the, the Prussians. I mean, the ob objective is stop Napoleon, but everything after that is completely different. Um, Wellington has the, the objective to, um, to stop that war as quickly as possible. So this is the, um, we have the Congress of Vienna running at the same time. We have the balance of power. We have this new design for Europe that is creating and Wellington feels that pressure that I, that, that war has to, um, has to be won as quickly as possible because the longer this campaign goes, the more problems there will be in, um, in, in Vienna. Russians come very angry to this battle. Um, they have, that's like, they thought France was giving such a generous peace in 1814. And now, you know, the Fran French Napoleon showed up and they um, celebrated him again. So the Prussians come with 
France has to be really defeated, utterly defeated, humbled, put on its knees, unable to arise again. So we have completely different mind, uh, completely different outlooks here as goals. So this is why Wellington is, um, proceeds one way and Blucher another way. And why we see that the, um, there is a certain uneasiness between the two headquarters. There is problems between um, the two headquarters and um, and, and then there is a difference how they operate. So it's not so much the personalities. I think it's much more the larger politics. Um, the problem is here, the larger politics. Yeah, and you definitely see that when the Allies move into France in 1815, don't you, with Wellington kind of sticking to his policy of, you know, plunder will not be tolerated amongst his troops, whereas the Prussians have that, I, I wouldn't quite say vengeful, Stance, but they they're quite content well, it is, to, it is to vengeful. You, you think that's fair you don't think that's taking it a little bit too far yeah no 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 need to sugarcoat it um <laughs> and um <laughs> it's actually you know that vengeful mindset um and again i will bring carl von clausewitz as my witness um because um yes i mean uh the prussian troops go um they are really angry. Um, again, we have to remem remember um, they, Russia has given enormous, you know, that there is enormous casualties in 1814, in 1813, 1814. Now in 1815, our, this campaign for many of the Prussians, that was a necessary campaign that should have never um, the Prussian economy is not that great, so they cannot buy as much of food as Wellington can. So, um, so that there is also this thing. So there is a lot of looting, but there is also vengefulness. Um, and uh, the Prussian public opinion actually supports that. And we see it that Marie von Clausewitz writes letters to her husband. She's um, in Prussia and she's writing and saying like, I hope the French get really punished, you know, she's like really angry and so on. And then Clausewitz, who's actually on the ground and starts seeing that that, as much as he's not a great friend of the French, but he finds this looting, this punishment and so on, that it's counterproductive, that it should not actually happen um, the way it is. And he actually writes like um, really um, letters where he rebuffs his own wife where he says like this policy what we're doing is is um it's counterproductive we shouldn't be doing it um it's not going anywhere he actually pays a huge um homage to um to wellington um where he um actually i can even quote it where clausewitz says the history will look kind of upon the role the english played in this campaign for they haven't come like us full of passion for revenge and compensations, but as a scornful master with noble restraint in an, and impeccable righteousness. In short, they are more honorable than us. So um, we see that Clausewitz, like I said, he's not a big fan of the French, but he finds um, the way the, the Prussians um, 
treat the French civilians um, very, um, very um, distasteful personal, on personal um, note, but also counterproductive. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely easier for the British and therefore by extension, Wellington's Anglo-Dutch force as a commander to, to take that perspective, partly because there is that tradition from the Peninsula War with Wellington in command, where he was always incredibly concerned about the need to um, ensure that he, his troops didn't plunder the local civilians because that would then cause the, the Spanish and Portuguese to turn against him and he'd seen what had done to the French army in Spain and Portugal. But then equally, Britain hadn't been invaded and that therefore meant that the, the population hadn't suffered in the same way that Prussia had. Yes, that's 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 com completely true. That's that's the problem, but um, it's <laughs> one of my colleagues, Everett Dolman, has the phrase that strategy uh, never ends. So once you you win a battle, or once you create one reality, then another strategy kicks up in. You know, like you won the war, but then now you have to have the strategy for the peace, and now it's like well. You have defeated the French. How do you build the peace? And that's like, um, and it requires completely different skill set. How do you build? How do you build this the, the peace? And it requires also to, as a victor, to um, kind of quiet down your anger, your passion, which is not always easy to do. It's none of these things are easy. Like it's easy for us to debate them, but. They are never easy when you're the commander. Absolutely, the, the benefit of hindsight is a wonderful thing, isn't it? Wellington lamented the yeah. fact that he couldn't have his Peninsula War regiments um, for the Waterloo campaign as he would have liked. And another of the points about the campaign that is often overlooked is that Wellington's own army was made up of Dutch and Belgian forces, some of which were quite raw troops. But the Prussians also had their own issues and, and problems to deal with in terms of the quality of, of, of um, their army. What, what headaches did Blücher have to, have to deal with? Well, this is, um, this is an army, uh, actually when Napoleon comes back to power, Prussia has something like uh, 50, uh, sorry, 30,000 troops um, spread around um, the, the border with the low countries. So, they almost don't have troops. They are in the middle of um, transformation. We have um, Gerhard von Scharnhorst has died, 1813, but we, uh, we have now um, Hermann von Boyen. That's another of his great students, not only Karl von Clausewitz, there is a, a whole bunch of them. So um, he is reforming the Prussian army. So the moment when Napoleon comes is actually the, the worst moment possible for, for the Prussians. Um, and also Prussia has gained a lot of new territory. So they have um, now um, on the East, they have new Polish population um, that actually many of them has, have fought for Napoleon. So they have also um, uh, in, in the West, they have a lot of territories which also don't see themselves as Prussian. And again, many of them have fought for, um, uh, for Napoleon, and then we have um, huge, Prussia gets a huge chunk of Saxony. Saxony was also ally of, um, of um, Napoleon, so 
Saxony is really punished. And then the Prussians have to integrate all these different troops in their own. Um, the Saxons actually are the ones that are the unhappiest and actually the Prussians do it the most, um, the worst way possible they handle the, the, the Saxon troops because they just start basically on, on the birthplace. They start separating troops basically on their birthplace. Like now you're gonna be a Prussian, you're gonna fight in the Prussian army. And you know, like when men fight together, there are those bonds and like just the Prussians really, really handle it bad. So actually we have <laughs> in the middle of all these things, Napoleon is back and so on. There is a mutiny between the Saxon troops. So the, the Prussians have very hard time putting that mutiny together. And then no one wants those two troops, even Wellington, the Prussians at some point try to offer him the Saxon troops. And Wellington is like, I, I don't need that headache, I'm, I'm good. So they have to actually send many of the Saxons back. Um, so, uh, and then Prussia has to rise, um, uh, raise this new army. And that's again, there was so many casualties in the previous wars, the country is exhausted. There is a very hard time actually, um, the Prussians have really hard time um, getting new soldiers. There is also not, no time to train them. So many, like many of the troops just basically barely know how to shoot. Um, somebody like, it's really interesting, um, American public knows him much better, which is uh, um, Franz or Francis Lieber. That's a guy who's gonna play a big role in the American Civil War. He, um, as an immigrant, he goes back to the, goes to the United States, but he's born Prussian, so he's 17 and enlists, and he barely knows what he's doing, but like when you read his memoirs, he's basically following whatever the sergeant says and like hopes that it's okay somewhat. Um, so that's, that's a lot of these troops are like this. Um, so uh, the Prussians actually have a huge problem holding those troops together. That's one of the problems why the Battle of Ligny is lost is because uh, Prussia does not have um, um, that does not have veteran troops. Uh, some of them just um, about 8,000 just deserting, uh, right? Like in the middle, in the, in the end of the battle, it's like, um, yeah. So it's the whole, so not only coalition warfare, but like fighting with really not the best troops you can fight. It's, it's, I mean, what the commanders did in that campaign is quite unbelievable. We have to give them that. Well, they're, in Blücher's case, a lot of the troops are actually landwehr, aren't they? Which is, yeah, you know, a, a, the, which for people who aren't familiar is kind of a, a version of militia. Yeah, they're kind of, um, uh, that's again, um, Scharnhorst and so on. That's the idea after um, 1813. Um, Basically, um, that's the troops. Um, the, um, the, the troops that um, um, they are like the reserve troops. Um, um, people who uh, somewhat know how to shoot. They actually perform very well, and sometimes they are like older than the. Um, and many of them is like actually the age older than conscription. Um, so. Um, 
they are not well equipped, um, but then some of them have fought in 1813, 1814, so sometimes they actually have more experience than the, the regular troops. So um, sometimes it's like, you know, um, sometimes people look down on the Landwehr, but actually some of the best performances come from the Landwehr and from those veteran units um, that, that have been created. Well, a large part of Thielman's corps, which was left to, to hold Valve uh, and protect the French, uh, the Prussian rear, sorry, was made up of Landwehr, wasn't it? Something like two thirds of it um, consisted yes, of Landwehr. Um, so the the third corps, where Clausewitz's chief of staff, it's led by uh, by a Saxon commander, by a Saxon general who switches side. He's one of the few, but he's like the most glorious Saxon commander that the Saxons have, and that's uh, Johann von Tillmann. Great, um, he, he has fought with Napoleon in Borodino. He has like one of the great um, things he does in Borodino, but then he switches sides and so on. So um, third corps, where Clausewitz serves, is actually the the least um, equipped, the least prepared um, of, uh, of all the troops. Uh, that's why it was actually designated as uh, mostly as reserve. That's, that's probably one of the reasons why actually Karl von Clausewitz was appointed chief of staff there, um, simply because he um, comes from this, um, this group of uh, military reformers. Um, he's, he, he's been really good in um, keeping Valmoden Corps in 1813-1814 together. So that's why he's actually assigned there. And um, I think it's, I think one of the things in Vavra that Clausewitz basically has to order Landwehr um, units to fight and hold, um, hold till the end position to the last man kind of kind of really scars him in a way a little bit um he you know because these are um kind of more civilians they are not regulars they're family fathers and so on and you kind of make them um risk their lives and um it's it's much different it's in in the united states we will um kind of uh, Landwehr troops are like national guards, what we have in, in the United States. But they actually, again, they perform, <laughs> they perform actually much better than the regular troops, which are the regular troops are just 17, 18 years old boys sometimes with no experience whatsoever. Absolutely. Politically, how significant was Waterloo for the Prussians? Because there had been a lot of tensions between Austria and Prussia over Saxony before the campaign, and the Austrians and the Russians seemed to lose out a bit diplomatically by not having been involved in that final campaign, that final defeat of Napoleon. Do you feel that the Prussians gained anything at the table of international diplomacy as a result of Waterloo? Well, they wished. <laughs> We, um, there is actually a letter, Gneisenau, August Neidhardt from Gneisenau, that's the chief of staff, uh, Blucher's chief of staff, which kind of we forgot to talk about, but he is actually, um, we have almost um, equal partnership, so Blucher is the, the, the face of the campaign, he's the charismatic commander and so on, while Gneisenau on the back of it makes most of the strategic plans. So he actually writes a letter to um, 
the Prussian um, to to the Prussian Chancellor Hardenberg. He writes him a letter just on the 22nd, actually, on the 20 June 22nd, he writes him a letter and says, "Like we have done our um, job. Now it's your um, now it's your turn." And the letter is kind of really, really, I mean, mean and like really. Um, France, how you should cut France, you know, French territory, um, sort of really um, humble France, make punish France and make it impossible for France ever to do anything again militarily. Basically what the French <laughs> did to the Germans after World War I. Um, and um, the Prussians have every intention to do the same, to do that, to follow up. but. Um, what we have, what we see is that um, because the campaign finished so quickly, um, is that this new um, new uh, structure uh, for Europe, the, the balance of power, where um, the countries basically, um, the, the big powers um, balance each other out and that, that, that's how they keep the stability in Europe. Um, this Prussia's desires, they actually hold back. They, they, the, the other powers managed to hold the Prussians back and balance them out, so kind of isolate um, Prussia and all these um, huge demands that the, the Prussians have, they actually could never, um, they, they cannot pull them through. And uh, I should say that's actually, um, that, that was the, the right decision, you know, um, no matter how much Prussia has suffered and the desires of the Prussians, um, you know, to humble France. Ultimately, if, if, if France was um, cut into pieces like Gneisenau wished, it would have made it, um, th this peace would never have held. It would have destabilized Europe. Um, and this is why decisions like this, um, they have to be like building the peace have to come from a peace uh, from a place of consideration and removed from all these passions. Um, so yeah, Prussians actually do not succeed. I mean, France loses a little bit of territory, but it goes more to the um, to the smaller countries, which is the um, the Netherlands um, mostly. Yeah. And if you could explode one myth about the Prussians and the Waterloo campaign, what would it be? Oh, that would be, of course, uh, for me, is the um, the famous or infamous meeting between uh, Wellington and the Prussian headquarters on the 15th, on the 16th, sorry. This is the, before the Battle of Ligny. I think for the British listeners, that's not quite, quite quite well known, but like if you open um, uh, the German historiography of the conflict, there is like a, thousands of pages written on that. So what I'm talking about is um, right before the Battle of Ligny, um, where the Prussians will make uh, the stand around the Sombrev, the river Sombrev, um, and Ligny Brook and so on. Um, and um, Wellington is by Potterbra. Um, they meet at one o'clock at the windmill, thinking about how they're gonna fight now Napoleon. And um, Wellington says, "Like um, I will, 
Lucia once promised, you know, are you gonna support me? Because uh, the Russian right wing is kind of left in hanging in in the air, but it's because they expect that um, Wellington will come and support them from that side. So the the, the Prussians ask, "You gonna support us?" And uh, Wellington apparently he thinks he said, "I will help you if I can, or I will help you if I'm not attacked myself." While the Prussians take it as he will come, you know, that's a firm. No matter what, he's gonna come. So it's been like, I don't know how much uh, ink has been spilled, whose fault it is, who said what, what were the actual words, how was minute by minute, like there is people minute by minute, like what might have been said and so on. Um, and the interesting part of, for me is how those, um, these are very experienced commanders. These are men who's been in so many battles, Coalition warfare for most of them is not nothing new. How could have that happened, that they so misunderstand each other? Um, and that this is one of these, like, as Clausewitzians call it, you know, friction or fog of war, whatever you want. I just wished I was like fly on the wall to actually figure out what, what happened there. Absolutely, this is the famous meeting where allegedly, um, Wellington pointed out that the Prussians were quite exposed in their position to artillery fire because the region is quite, although it has uh, folds in the ground, they're quite kind of gentle. And, and so allegedly he sort of says, well, look, they're, they're going to get hit yeah. by artillery fire. And supposedly Neisenau turns around and says, well, actually, I would like to see the enemy in sort of this quite cold cutting tone. It's one of the few times that somebody seems to have kind of outdone Wellington in a cold kind of cutting comeback. Do you oh, think that actually like, happened? Uh, I don't know. Like, Wellington was quite right <laughs> about that part. Um, he was, and also I think another place is that he said like that it's, um, the font was too long. That's actually one of the problems of the Battle of Ligny, one of the biggest Prussian mistakes, that they have this huge long front that they have to spread all their troops and they cannot gather them in time and so on. So um, I, um, it's again, it's um, one of these cognitive things where people just seem to talk the same language but somehow don't understand each other. And um, I, I find it fascinating, you know, like, because um, it's, humans are complicated and that's one of these complicated moments and uh, yeah. Out of interest, what language did they use when they met, when Wellington and Blücher met at um, well, uh, they, the, um, uh, the correspondence, I would say French, the correspondence is actually in French, um, which is actually a little bit strange in a way because Neisenau speaks really good English. He has served um, under British command um, in the American independence war. He was one of the famous Hessians. He was not Hessian at all, but like was what the Americans call the Hessians. Um, Eisenhower was actually, he could have, they could have spoken um, a pretty good English with each other. Might, might have understood each other. That's like, <laughs> might have actually understood each other if they spoke English. But it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's fascinating how humans act. You can't help but wonder if that was part of the issue. 
and whether things kind of got lost in translation going from English to French to German and then from German to French to English and whether that played a part because I think Wellington at one point was a bit scathing about um, Bluku's French and kind of implied that he wasn't particularly gifted. Oh yeah, Bluku's French was atrocious. Bluku's French was atrocious. That's, that's not like, there is so uh, many jokes how badly Blucher said things and so on and like how bad his, his French was. That's, um, but again, Gneisenau spoke really good French <laughs> like, yeah, and I think one of the German authors had this um, suggestion that um, Wellington, in a way, um, sort of had this much positive outlook. I will, because the problem for Wellington, why he doesn't go and support the, the Prussians is because he can, um, he has to concentrate his troops. It takes him a very long time to move them. That's Napoleonic warfare, so you need to move them all from, um, you know, from Brussels and concentrate them. So he cannot, like, he still concentrates troops by the end of the, like, at seven o'clock, by the end of the day, he's still concentrating troops. So he has his own hands full. Um, like, Clausewitz actually, uh, in his own study of the 1815 campaign, says, like, it was completely unrealistic from the, uh, f whatever, Wellington said or not said, it's just, it was, Prussians should have done their due diligence. Um, it was unrealistic from them to, to count on it. But, um, and maybe that's here the difference between Wellington and Blucher, because Blucher says, whatever, I'll make it work, you know, no matter what, I'll make it work. <laughs> and um, uh, Wellington is much more the more considerate commander. Um, so I must say, I'm not in a position to criticise anyone's um, French, as people who've listened to this podcast will know. Whenever I try and attempt to pronounce something that's not in English, it, it seems to become the latest laughing stock of Twitter, quite rightly, I should say. One final question from me. My French is not much better. One final question from me. What's Waterloo's significance for you? Well, okay, it's a, it's a great battle. It's the drama. You, you cannot make up these things, you know. That's like drama better than anything Hollywood can do, you know. Every time you read those accounts, it's just, if you're not, like, if you don't get goosebumps and you don't continue reading those eyewitness accounts, you're not a human, okay? That's just... But then you know, I, I, teach, um, um, I teach active duty officers. I, I teach practitioners of war. So um, I think Waterloo for me, it's very interesting first to talk about coalition warfare because we continue to have those problems. That's like Iraq, Afghanistan, whatever you want, Syria. And it's interesting to talk about these things and then um, students make connections to their own experience. But then um, the meaning for me is really interesting, the meaning of the decisive battle, what we call decisive battle. Because if you look, um, people have the, 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 this idea decisive battle is, um, you know, we fought the enemy and the enemy uh, was defeated. And then and there the enemy asked for peace and the war was over. So that's what people think about decisive battle. So in these terms, Waterloo is not decisive battle because the war continued. But then um, 
that challenges Waterloo challenges the simplistic narrative what it is decisive battle and actually Waterloo is decisive battle in the real um, in the real meaning of decisive battle a battle that um, basically brought a big decision just not what the, um, the general public thinks about um, decisive battle. And then my officers like sometimes tend to say like, well, we don't have any more decisive battles and war has changed so much. And why, why we don't get any more decisive battles? And like, and then you look at the Waterloo, so many things had to happen for that battle to become a decisive battle. So many political decisions, so many military decisions, so many things had to be overcome. You know, the, the Prussian distrust against, the, um, against uh, Wellington. Um, Wellington's trust in the Prussians. So, and then the pursuit and working together despite having different interests. So that's like, well, think about it. What are the conditions to create decisive battle? You know, think, think long and hard what makes decisive battle. And I think in these terms, um, Waterloo is just not only a great battle, but it's a um, battle we can learn so much uh, from, battle we have to study and look beyond the, um, the simplistic narrative because it's one of the most interesting battles that we ever, ever had and one of the most consequential battles in uh, world history. Vanya, it's been an absolute joy talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me for Waterloo Remembered. That was the historian Vanya Bellinger from the United States Command School. You can follow Vanya on Twitter at VanyaEF and her book, Marie von Clausewitz, The Woman Behind the Making of On War, is available to order online now. The views expressed in this interview are those of the individuals who have said them and do not represent an official position of the United States Air Force. If you have any questions or comments, remember that you can get involved on Twitter using the hashtag WaterlyRemembered or in the forum at thenapoleonicwars.net, where you will find a dedicated room for Waterly Remembered. Join me tomorrow when I'll be speaking to the historian Ed Koss as we discuss what it was like to be a soldier during this period in A Soldier's Life for Me. Until then, I'm Zach White. This has been Waterly Remembered from The Napoleonicist. Take care, my friends. Stay safe. And as always, thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.